guys and girls and everybody. This is Lissa Mandel from the Bitch Seat Podcast. As some of you may know, we are a part of the Atlantic Transmission Network, which is a network that puts out all kinds of great podcasts. A great way to support our show and our sister shows is to visit theatlantictransmission.com and click on the Amazon link at the top of the homepage. It's all the same great Amazon stuff at the same great price, but we get a small piece for sending you there. So if you want to keep shows like The Bitch Seat going, keep us happy, then, uh, you know, throw in your pennies. You don't even have to pay anything extra. Hey, campers. Uh, rise and shine. It is another episode of the Bitch Seat Podcast, and... Good morning. My friend and dear engineer Veronica is here to be my co-host today while Phil fulfills his uh, financial duties or what have you. Uh, Veronica, I'm so happy to have you here. Thanks for having me. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Feels good. Uh, and uh, in a bit, we have an amazing storyteller guest, uh, Chris Corbell, uh, but before that, Wanted to check in with you a little bit. Yeah. Um, real quick plug, uh, plug land. Um, if you are in New York, the Bitch Seat will have a live show at QED in Astoria on July 31st at 8.30 p.m. It's a Monday. We have confirmed comedian Liz Barrett and more amazingness TBA. Uh, and if you're not in New York, you can always continue to listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, all the things. Please subscribe and tell your friends. And, uh, you know, we're on Twitter at... Post about it. Hashtag it. Ha- what? <laughs> Hashtag it. Uh, Twitter at the underscore bitch underscore seat. We're on Instagram at the bitch seat. We're on Facebook. We are pretty much everywhere trying to invade your ear holes. And... Um, and if you were wondering, like, who made her icon on Instagram, it was me. I mean, no big deal or anything, but I drew it. It's true. <laughs> it's the best. Veronica does a really fantastic drawings of uh, kind of um, bewildered stick figures that I really relate to. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, V. Yes. Um, I'm going to read an entry from um, 1996, which was when I was... And I think this is the end of sixth grade. Okay. Do you remember what you were doing in sixth grade? Okay. In sixth grade, I um, switched schools. Oh, that's so traumatic. Because I, six, so I had really, really bad stomach problems in elementary school. And I mean, looking back, clearly from anxiety. But at the time we were like, I'm broken. Um, (laughs) uh, (laughs) That's how it goes. Yeah. I had switched schools out of where we were because of a teacher that my mom was like, you don't want to have this teacher. We'll send you to this other school. So I went to that school and then I had to, I found out I had to have surgery because my gallbladder didn't work. What? And yeah, I didn't have a functioning gallbladder. And uh, what do we need gallbladders for? It processes. You don't need it. It's not an essential organ, but it processes fat. Oh, got you. So it's helpful, (laughs) but it's not needed. Maybe my gallbladder has never been working. Yeah. It's painful. You would probably know. Oh, gotcha. Um, but the teachers, since I had been so sick, they were like, can you wait until Thanksgiving break to have the surgery? And I was like, no, we just found out what's wrong with me. I want to have the surgery and yeah. get better. And so 
my mom ended up taking me out of that school. And then I went back to the school I'd been at before. So, but with a better teacher. Does that make sense? I went, so I went to Sawyer Woods at the beginning was the mm-hmm. name of the school. Which uh, is where in the country? I lived in Washington state. It was mm-hmm. in Covington, Washington. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the teacher at Sawyer Woods, since I had been absent so much, was like, please wait until vacation to have your surgery. And my mom was like, absolutely not. We've been That's doing tests. That's so insane. Yeah. And so I got the surgery. It's a pretty quick procedure. Um, it's like down to an exact science. They just use lasers and they um, pull your gallbladder out through your belly button. <laughs> and since mine never worked, it was swollen. So it ripped my belly button open. Um, oh, my God. So I have a scar on my belly button. Because you're a badass. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> and then I just started going to school at Grass Lake Elementary, which is also in Covington. Um, Wait, all this was happening while you were, right, you're, you're younger than me by several years. So you were in elementary school when all this was going on. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> do you, was there any like emotional fallout from going through this whole thing? Did you ultimately feel triumphant about it when it was over? Or did you feel like you had missed a lot of school. Honestly, having to switch schools in sixth grade was awful. And so, but my mom didn't want me to have that teacher. And I was just like, okay. I mean, obviously I didn't have a choice in sixth grade and I was too young. Right. So getting to go back to the school that I'd grown up in was definitely better. So I was glad that that happened because I didn't know anyone at the other elementary school. Oh God. Such a lonely experience. Yeah. I mean, all of my childhood was difficult (laughs) but that was I think it was better that I went back real quick contextually siblings I have an older sister she's two years older than me and were you guys close at the time um we fought constantly got you yeah so that wasn't really a solace place no (laughs) (laughs) and did you start drawing um bewildered stick figures when you were younger or were you drawing other things I doodled a lot yeah um what kind of doodles at that age I mean probably nothing just like in the margins of papers probably nothing of uh substance other than just like a distraction Mm -hmm. I remember I used to doodle you know I would make my textbook covers out of uh paper shopping bags Mm -hmm. uh, because we we had to cover all of our textbooks Mm -hmm. and I would depending on who my crush was at the time, I would make a sort of, it ended up looking like a kind of rune that was like a cross between my first initial L, a plus sign, and whatever the guy's first initial was. Mm -hmm. So if you looked at it really quickly, it just kind of looked like a doodle. But more closely, you could (laughs) see that it was actually like two letters and a plus sign intertwined. And I would just like cover my textbooks with that. Usually C for Cashin. As listeners know, I was obsessed with him. Yes. One of these days, he's going to, listen to this and be really freaked out. such a out. particular <laughs> name. Someone's got to have heard it that notion. I know. It's the only passion that I ever knew. Yeah. And uh, I was um, I think in college I had some notebooks that I drew very similar to what I draw now, Where it, and it was usually me complaining about the class I was in. So it would be like a stick figure that was just like staring into space. It would be like, I hate this class or something. <laughs> <laughs> just like, or like slamming a book down or... Yeah, I really, it was very, I've been thinking about this a lot lately. And actually recently in the New Yorker, there was a shouts and murmurs about what we used to do before the internet existed. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, uh, sit in a chair and stare at the wall and that was perfectly fine or do a thing and then not report it to anybody. And um, yeah. 
I really had to lean on writing and drawing and and those kinds of like private activities so much because there was literally no other outlet. Mm -hmm. And now, you know, I mean, listeners know, like I'm kind of torn about how I feel about the future and how I feel about the internet and social media because on the one hand, yes, it increases um, efficiency and uh, communication, which is great. But on the other hand, it takes us away from our private internal world and yeah. and allows us to literally never go into that private internal world, which I think might be taking us back a peg, you know, evolutionarily in terms of consciousness. I agree. So um, so I'm going to – I'm already that old person just, like, clamoring about back in my day, you know. <laughs> I swore I would never be that person, but I am. I mean, generationally, we are the generation that started without internet and then got it. A little bit. Yeah, we, we straddled that line, and um, that's going to be the bane of my whole existence. I Every think. kid that is born from now on will hear that from us. Sorry, kids. <laughs> yeah, while they while they meanwhile are like texting their friends by like talking into their hand or something. You know, it's only a matter of time. I heard someone talk about how they had a cell phone in like fourth grade the other day. What? And I was just like, I didn't have one until I was twenty. <laughs> <laughs> I did get one eighth grade because we had moved. And so in order for me, we moved to a new town. And so in order for me to get home, I had to be able to contact my mom. And so mm. she got me a cell phone. But it was literally just to play Snake and call my mom. Right. <laughs> yeah. Was it like a big block? Was it a big cell phone? It was that Nokia, whatever. Oh, yeah. yeah. The Nokia. Oh, my God. Those ringtones. Black tones. and white. Yeah. Will haunt me until I die. <laughs> um, cool. Well, now that we're talking about Life Before the Digital Age. Uh, here I'm going to read an excerpt from Satin 2, this, uh, the diary with a, a lock that doesn't... By the way, diaries that have locks on them and keys, it's literally all the same lock and key. Yep. You could open literally any diary anywhere. Oh, absolutely. But I felt good about it at the time until my little brother <laughs> and his friend broke into it and whatever. I thought they were different, and I remember I had a diary that had a lock on it. I locked it, and then I hid the key, and then I didn't remember where I hid the key, and I never got back in the diary. (laughs) I could have just used, like, a pen to open it, but I was so young, I was like, it's gone. (laughs) You know, I just had a memory of, so, okay, I went to a shrink when I was four uh, because my parents thought that I had an eating disorder when I was four. I was really just very picky. I would eat, like, dry Cheerios, and that was it. So they sent me to a shrink. And uh, it was like play therapy, you know. I I don't remember too much of it because that was super early, but I do remember having this little like pink plastic box and I couldn't find the key to it. It was lockable and I could have – and I swore that the key was inside of the box, which doesn't logically make any sense. And we tried to open it every which way and then finally I made my therapist break it. (laughs) And the key was not in there. I don't know. If but that, you believed. I mean, I guess. Dr. Madigan was her name. And thinking back, I just, it, it makes me squeamish. I'm like, oh, like, I don't want to talk about my private life when I'm that young. Like, let me just develop my mind. Jesus Christ. Yeah, no kidding. Anyway. I remember doing therapy as a child. Yeah. Not four, but pretty young. And it was always just like playing with toys. Yeah, it was playing with toys. And I'm sure I... I'm, I'm sure I had all kinds of red flags coming out of my mouth oh, yeah. that I didn't even sure, yeah. realize. But um, there was that 30 minute session they had with my mom afterwards. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. 
All right, let me get to this because our dear guest is waiting here quietly and we don't allow him to speak until <laughs> I say so. So this is from June 1st, 1996. It's a Saturday. Dear Satin 2, well, here we are again. I can hear the summer already singing its hymns of flowers and oceans in my ears. Three more weeks of grade seven, but where did it all go? It was fast, as fast as light, and again, another year slipped through my fingers like grains of sand on a beach. It was a bumpy road, but I drove above the speed limit. I hit the rocks and ditches hard, but it looks like another stretch of summer sunset is already facing me eye to eye. The end of the year will be sadder than I thought it would be a few weeks ago. On my trip to Riverside, Riverside being a theme park similar to Six Flags, but not as cool. Is well, it owned by Six Flags now? Uh, yes. I can't remember if it closed. I think Six Flags bought it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me start from the beginning. Since the start of the year, Keynotes, uh, which was the uh, acapella choir I was in, <laughs> Girls Ensemble, which was the female choir that I was in, Concordia, Jazz Band, and Woodwind Ensemble were planning a trip at the end of the year to be adjudicated, oh yeah, I forgot about this, in Massachusetts, and afterward to go to Riverside. Well, when May finally rolled around, we found out what buses we were assigned to. This is what so many of my diary entries are about, is like, what buses we rode on the field trips and what crushes of mine were on those buses. I found out that I was on, oh no, the Concordia bus. The girls' ensemble had been split up, and half of us had to go on that dreaded bus number three. I sat with Carissa. Maybe this won't be such a bad trip after all, I thought, looking around the nifty bus and all the cute guys on it. This one guy, sitting in front of me, Mike Thomas, looked, well, kind of cute. As the trip proceeded, I began to like him more and more. And I still like him now. Think of it, an eighth grader. And when the year is over, he's going to high school, and I won't see him until my freshman year. So I'm going to tell him I like him before the end of the year. And I like him a lot. I hardly <laughs> ever see him. So when I do, even if only for a split second, it gives me this wonderful chill and my good mood holds out till the end of the day. And then some. Yes, I've been in a good mood since the Riverside trip on Friday, May 7th, 1996. That was the last day of my last entry. Oh, that was the day after my last entry. So what do you think? Bus number three turned out to be a good omen, not a bad one. I'll write again soon. Pleasant summer dreams. Love, LMM. By the way, in the in a later entry, this is a guy who I literally never had a, a single, like, we didn't even know each other. He was a total stranger. But I was like, oh, he has freckles. I like him. Mm -hmm. And uh, in, the, in a later entry, I talk about how I went to Friendly's and saw him sitting there with his dad and then talked about how lame I thought that was. Oh, my it's God. Just, I, it's everything. Everything was just, like, these whole worlds that I created in my head that never translated to real yeah. life. Did you ever tell him, or that that ruined it? You didn't decide not to tell him. I'm pretty sure I did, but it was never to his face. Like I never told guys to their faces. It would be like a, a game of telephone, right, right, basically. Right. You know, I was big on passing notes. Mm. Mm, but uh, but most of the guys were like, "Who the f who is that? Who is that random silent girl who like I didn't talk to lots of people. I just had these vivid imaginations. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Do you remember? Did you? Did that happen to you though? Because I have memories of like the smallest moment just blossoming into this huge infatuation with a guy. A lot of the times, it was I would have a dream about a guy that I didn't even ever think of in that way at all, and in the dream, it was romantic, and I would wake up um, 
Oh, yeah. With a crush on a guy, which reminded me always <laughs> of the Billy Ocean song that goes, you wake up suddenly and you're in love. And yeah. I was like eight, and I was like, I really understand that. <laughs> Billy Ocean. I remember, yeah, anytime a guy was like, cool with me I was like my brain would just be like we're gonna get together we're married I, know. <laughs> I remember I had um Garrett Long was a boy in my elementary school that had the same birthday as me and so every year it was like we were the two people having a birthday party on the same weekend and mm-hmm. we'd like invite we were in the same grade so we'd invite all the same people and I always wanted boys to come to my party and there were two boys Jake and Eric they're best friends and they came to my party instead of Garrett's and I remember I was just like in love with Jake. <laughs> I was like, he came to my party. That means he likes me. Yeah, of course. But we were in like whatever grade it was. And it was just like everyone was all giggly and silly and we didn't talk to each other. And we always had, I always had a pool party for my birthday. And you just, had a pool? No, we would go to the public pool. Got you. Yeah, I had a YMCA birthday or two. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was every year for mine. And it would always pour rain because it was the beginning of fall. And. It'd be great. That's awesome. Yeah. Ah, <laughs> uh, Jake. Jake is such a crushable name. I don't know why. It's just so is. great. It just rolls off the tongue. Uh, <laughs> do you know what else rolls off the tongue? The name of our guest today, Chris Corbell. So uh, he's been waiting very patiently here, um, probably uh, rolling his eyes internally at all this crush nonsense. So um, our guest today is the current host of the storytelling show Tattletales in Los Angeles. And he is an incredible storyteller uh, with shows all over L.A. and New York as well. He's a fellow New Yorker, so um, our hearts are connected. Give it up for Chris Corbell. All right. So we see Chris take a baseball cap off of his hair and shake it out. He's doing air drums as he walks down the street. It's a sunny day in New York, and the weeds are bursting out of the sidewalk. And Chris walks by a record store. He walks by a comic book shop. He walks by a pizzeria. And he's making eye contact with everybody he sees and giving them a big, knowing smile. Chris Corbell, welcome to the bitch seat. Great to be here. Thanks. <laughs> Mick Jones of Foreigner and I have the same birthday. I knew there was going to be a connection somewhere. So I just knew it. Uh, did you Did you like Foreigner? Do you like Foreigner? Was that a thing? No, but I always <laughs> loved making fun of Foreigner. Yeah, I think that's kind of like what people do. Yeah, right? yeah, 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 yeah. My favorite one is Hot Blooded. Oh, good. I almost did that one. There are so many. There are so many good ridiculous anthems. They're all great. They They're are. all great. There's just they are the cheesiest band. Exactly. <laughs> oh, it's delicious. So, Chris, um, I feel like we connected right away based on this, like, New York sensibility that we got. Totally. Um, so, tell me uh, tell me about where exactly your childhood occurred. So, I grew up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Oh, you're so lucky. And, yeah, because my parents had money. Oh, God, I'm jealous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was in the, I was born in 65, so I grew up from, like, there from, like, the 60s, the 70s to the early 80s. Mm-hmm. And, uh 
that was a crazy place. Now it's really expensive, but back then it was known as a place where you'd find wealthy Jewish people, homosexuals, mm-hmm. and Puerto Ricans, and prostitutes of every denomination. So that's exa- I just wanted to live there so badly. Where exactly in the Upper West Side were 81st and West End Avenue. Oh, my God. <laughs> I used to write diary entries about West End Avenue because, oh, yeah. oh, my God. So when you were there, when you were growing up there, did you— did you love it at the time? Did you realize how special it was? Or were you kind of like, eh? Eh. I, was like, I just thought the whole, you know, you have to understand something. When you grow up in Manhattan, you know, when you read a comic book or you watch a movie or you watch a TV show, there is your neighborhood. So yeah. you just assume that it's like that old New Yorker cartoon. I'm completely forgetting who the, the cartoonist mm-hmm. is, but it's in every apartment in New York City where there's like, there's New York City, it's a map of America. It's like New York. L.A., Russia, China, you know. Yeah. Yep. Very, there's no such thing as the rest of the There's America. nothing in between Nothing there. in between. Yeah, yeah. I always honestly thought it was a big adventure if I went to Westchester. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, creepy. Oh, so many trees there. Yeah, 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 yeah. What is that about? <laughs> if you're from New York City and you're like about maybe you're two hours out of the city, you just call that area the country. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. That's amazing. So when you watched um, those movies and stuff, were you like, oh, well, like, I clearly live in the coolest place on earth? Or were you, you didn't think Here's it was Here's how jaded deal. I was. Yeah. So when I was like seven years old, um, there was a giant Panavision camera in our living room because they were, they were filming a scene. There's a movie from the 70s called Superfly. I don't know if you ever heard of mm-hmm. it. Yeah. So in the film around the end, He's like dealing to like, he's giving his supply to an uptown rich white lady dealer. Mm-hmm. That's our apartment. Whoa. What? Yeah. Shut the fuck up. So as far as I'm concerned, and then like my next door neighbor, she was on All My Children. And like, like all these celebrities were just in my world. And I don't mean in a braggy way, because I was yeah. young. I would not realize that, you know, hey, my babysitter is on an after school special. Yeah. That's like, I just thought that was normal. Yeah. I didn't realize that, you know, people on TV who then also I see in the elevator wasn't like a real thing. It wow. really ruins you, honestly. Were your parents in show business? No. No, my, my dad was an attorney and my mom was an artist who uh, later on would go back to teaching public school. But yeah. Wow. And so your this artifact that you brought is is some art, is some visual art. Is art, which is so strange because it's not something I really do. It was... Um, it was a really strange experience because uh, at the time, like yourself, I used to just doodle yeah. all the time. And I was into comic books, so maybe I would like draw cyborgs because they're really easy to do. It's like, oh, half a human face, half a robot face. Not that problematic. Yeah. And I remember, this was like 1978, 79, and I'm really into like Doonesbury. Oh, my God. That's Okay. I just realized that you kind of remind me of Doonesbury, and I never put those things That's together. Okay. I never put those things together. Yeah, yes. Ga- Gary Trudeau actually lived on the Upper West Side, uh, which I did not know at the time. But, you know, it was weird because it wasn't like a regular comic book. It was like it was a satire. Exactly. You know, kid. It was cheeky. It was smart. Yeah. yeah. And there was this magazine like The Village Voice that went out of business when we go out of business, maybe in a year later, called the Soho News. Mm-hmm. And they had this thing called Stan Mack's Real Life Funnies. And this guy, Stan Mack, all he would do is he'd just overhear conversation, write it down, mm-hmm. and then he would illustrate it. Oh, I love that. Me Why too. doesn't that still exist? And like Stan and, and Gary Trudeau, they're not great artists. And they're not comic book artists. Mm-hmm. 
So they would just draw the world to the best of their abilities. Mm -hmm. Not, you know, they, they aim for realism, but that's all they had. My mom must have given me a felt tip pen. I do not like felt tip pens. Why? Uh, I have a very heavy hand. So, oh, so that bleeds through the page. I'm a ballpoint guy. And she <laughs> gave me one in green. And because my mom had been an art teacher, she just said, go, go draw something. Just, I don't know why she said that. And do you remember how old you were? Yeah, I was probably around between the ages of 12 and 13. An incredibly mm -hmm. dark period of my life where I have health problems and eventually have a kidney operation. Holy wow. shit. I am going through schools left and right. I have no friends. I'm not even getting on with my mom. My dad died when I was young. So mm -hmm. I have a sister, but she's two years younger than me. It is the perfect time to be an artist mm -hmm. because I hate the world yep. and the world hates me. Yeah. And I'm looking at this, what I drew, and I'm not, like, I think this is around the time where I'm starting to notice grown-up apartments in mm -hmm. less like, you know, like toys and stuff, but what like a grown-up's apartment is looks like. And not a hippie grown-up, but like a grown-up grown-up. Uh, not sure why that is. I think, I do not know whether it was just reading New Yorkers or looking at ads for furniture or some, what inspired you just, me. You had a sensibility about it. Yeah, but this is the beginning of me becoming, I'm just be my own grown-up. I must have decided that this is where I wanted to live. Oh, can you it's, grab a picture of that? Yeah, it's a living can... room, and it's it's so weird because it's it's literally for those of you who can't see, it's I, a, yeah, and for the listeners, I'll post this on the Facebook page. It's a chair with a little side table, and then I obviously have potted plants in, on the window, and I have a phone. I would totally live in this place. And a record player, and then there's this weird series of books with numbers on them. Like I think that's what we used to call an encyclopedia. Encyclopedia Britannica. Yeah, so apparently, <laughs> like my grandparents, I'm going to have an encyclopedia, and I'm going to have a lot to read. And apparently, I believe in potted plants, which is so strange because I didn't own any. Do but, you now? No, no, God, no. But this is this is <laughs> this is really my grown-up escape pod. This is really that's where incredible. I wanted to be. And, and that was it. That was, I just wanted, notice there's no couch. There's nothing that would indicate I'd want any other human being besides myself. No, it you're is, just an armchair philosopher surrounded by like all of the, the, um, the luxuries that you need. You have your, you have like three locks on the door, very safe of you. Um, there's a phone. So if you do want to connect with other people, you can. Yeah. And it's, uh, <laughs> it's an old, it's not, it doesn't look like it's a rotary. It looks like it's a, it's a touch tone, but it's like got the receiver in the. Well, that's what phones looked like when I was a kid. Yeah. No, my parents still have a, a, a rotary phone that they use in their bedroom. Oh, cool. Yeah. This is a touch tone phone because that was as modern as it gets. Yeah. But yeah, this is kind of like that, you know, Simon and Garfunkel song. I'm a rock. I'm oh, an island. Like God, I wish that we had been friends back then, Chris. I you feel were, like you weren't even alive yet. I know, not till '82. Yeah. But then I, I had the same. Like I would when I would go to New York, which is pretty frequently because my grandmother and my uncle and all this, everyone still lived there. My parents had moved to go to Connecticut to raise me, which I never forgave them for. But. Um, Whenever I would go to New York, I would look into all of the windows in the apartment buildings and just dream about being in them. And wow. that that looks like what I would like, you know, with the potted plants and the bookshelves and the in the chair and if it's any consolation, I don't think it had any basis really in reality as much as what I perceived. Like if you had really gone to any of these apartments, they would have been messy, they would have had odd knickknacks, they would have Nothing is clean or Oh, I know, but I was obsessed with looking at, you know, interior design magazines and yeah. stuff. This is like if Albert Speer had done home living. <laughs> I think it's great. And I love <laughs> the quality of the paper is now kind of like aged and yellowed and it's just really delicious. So do um 
you held on to this? You keep this in your so home? So here's a weird story. Okay, so I just decided I had these boxes of stuff that I had when I moved out here a long time ago from my mom's that she gave me. She said, you know, pack this stuff up when she moved from her big apartment to her little apartment. Mm-hmm. And I had not, like, opened up any of these boxes in years, like 20, 30 years. And in this book, Stan Mack's Real Life Funnies, I thought, mm-hmm. oh, my God, I haven't seen this since 1982. I open it up, and then this just falls out. Uh, and my instinct is not to look at it. That's how harsh the age of 12 and 13 wow. is. I didn't even want a reminder. Yeah. I have not looked at it literally since then. And I think, oh, I'll, perfect, I'll bring it to the show. Yeah, so what, when you first looked at it, like what kind of feelings happened in your body? What was your visceral this reaction? This is it. This is me looking at it for the first time. I, I just put it <laughs> right back. And how do you feel? You know, it's not as scary as I thought it would be. Oh, I'm good. I'm really surprised by the level of detail yeah. that I had. I, it's I didn't, really well done. Yeah, that was a very precocious 13-year-old dyslexic. <laughs> a dyslexic who turned out to be a great storyteller, which I think is a great oh, irony. Thank you very much. Oh, it's amazing. You're you're great. You're great at it. And, uh, okay, well, before, I mean, I'm not just going to, like, uh, you know, blow smoke up your ass for the entire time. Although that actually sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> the cleanse. Um, I do want, if it's okay with you, sure. I want to go deeper into the idea of this darkness that you had when you were that age, because oh, yeah. I think that's where, that's what propels us forward into our adult lives to do what we're doing now. So what kind of um, feelings or, or things were happening to to you at that time that you think, ended up causing you to become a storyteller later in life. Is there a connection there? Oh, sure, sure. I mean, you know, this particular period in time, I'm about, let's say I'm 13. I'm probably 13. I'm I'm not even five feet. I weigh 150 pounds. You bar mitzvah? No, no. My parents named me after a Roman Catholic saint because they thought that would be help me fit in. I guess you're not Jewish. I am Jewish. Oh, yeah. It shows you how committed my parents (laughs) were to Judaism. Got you. (laughs) Um... I am. I, I think this year I'll go through. Like I end up going through three schools because my dyslexia is really bad. And this mm-hmm. is in a period in history where no one really knows what to do right. with a dyslexic kid. Yeah. And were they three? Were they public schools or were they private schools? Private schools, private schools, private schools. I really should have gone to public school. That would have been fine. But mm-hmm. private schools get all weirded. In New York City private schools exist for two reasons: either to get your child into Harvard mm-hmm. or to keep your child out of prison. Right. Oh yeah. And I went to both that year. <laughs> you know, literally on on lunch break, I would go with kids and we'd go to KFC and then we'd go to a head shop and we'd sit in Central Park and get stoned. So, you know, and in other schools. When you were we, 13, you were getting stoned? I didn't say I was getting stoned. Oh, gotcha. Just in case I ever run for political office. I'm saying oh, I'm we, sorry. the collective <laughs> yes. group of people I was okay. with. Uh, you know, other places I'd have to go to school with like a suit and a tie. And, you know, Anglo-American was a school where you had to dress mm-hmm. like a British student. So yep. all of these schools I was flunking. I was not getting on with anyone. I had no friends. I um, loved Saturday Night Live. I loved mm-hmm. comic books. I loved comedy. Comedy was just like, because comedy is so rebellious. And, you know, and in, I loved social satire because when you're 13, you start noticing all the things that grownups do that make no sense that are lies. Yeah. And then like satire just puts a finger on that. And then you have people like, you know, like a Woody Allen at that mm-hmm. time who's like talking about the life of the mind and the, you know, the psyche. You're so lucky because I feel like you came of age right when it was like, that was a new thing, the Woody Allen thing. And when it was like, a, when it was a, still appropriate to talk about him. Yeah, a, yeah. It was a completely different era. It was, it was an era where everyone was really into therapy. 
Yeah. And it was an era where people were really into talking about their feelings and yeah. everything was disgusting because there was a lot of crime and drugs. Mm-hmm. So there was no reason to even pretend that things were, were clean and good. You know, yeah, it was right. the most un-whitewashed time. But uh, so, yeah, I think social realism was the very big thing in comedy at this period. It was just before mm-hmm. observational comedy would really come of age. Mm-hmm. And because living in New York City, it was so weird to grow up a wealthy kid in a city that was so poor. Yeah. You know, like... Were you aware of of that? Oh, you cannot escape it. Like, if you live in the Upper West Side of Manhattan, in one block, you're in a rich neighborhood. You walk down the street, you're in a working class neighborhood. You walk down another street, you're in public housing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you you get on the subway, and there's someone in a suit, and there's someone who's passed out because they're drunk. I miss that about New York so much, though. Yeah. Um, Did you go to Zabar's? Yeah, actually, I knew them. Uh, What?! What? Uh, yeah. <laughs> my brain is exploding. Yeah. Star, uh, in fact, it's very amusing. So when I'm like, because uh, uh, they lived in my building. Well, not all of them. Just uh, Saul and Barbara and Stanley did and Mr. Klein, who also was a silent partner. He, they lived in the area. And I think maybe one of someone in my family sold them the land like a billion years ago. Because that's what Jews do. We own land and then we sell it. <laughs> uh, but I remember when I was like... Uh, maybe like seven. Mm-hmm. I was on the street with my mom. I was on Broadway. She was talking to Carol Zabar. And oh, my God. Car- my mom had done work. Both of them were named Carol. And she had this little dog. And I did what a child does. I looked down at the dog because, you know, dogs are cute when you're seven. Mm-hmm. And the dog scratched me right over <gasps> here. Can you see it? I, I still yeah, have that yeah. scar. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it was funny, too, because that was a period when no one would sue anyone. Mm-hmm. No one would... Anything, anything was just like, ah, oh, kids being kids. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And, and, and that's also what really screws you up because when you go to Zabar's just to get your regular food, like someone else goes to like, you know, Key Foods right. or Wallbound right. or Kroger or mm-hmm. whatever brand of supermarket you have, wherever you're listening, mm-hmm. that was my local Zabar's, which is a specialty shop that had sturgeon and salmon and lox and roast beef and croissants and any kind of really high end it, before there and was a whole food exactly it was like, imagine a whole foods that was profoundly jewish oh god and you really have zabars you know you've got challah you've got a great coffee it's everything there you don't know that it's expensive because you you have no sense of economy right and everything is very delicious and gourmet and you really think that everybody on planet earth has access to like a uh, broccoli cheese souffle Right. <laughs> and, and, and caviar. Right. And Gruyere, because that's just like a normal person. Oh, my God. So then, all right, so then the older you got, at what point did you kind of wake up to the rest of the world and have that sort of fall from grace moment when you were like, oh, my God, I have the best of what there is? Well, it's a weird thing because, again, growing up in New York City, just as easily I would see, you know, really poor people. Sure. I went to public school. I knew kids who lived in projects. Uh you know, so you were always there. They were always, it's always just, you were rubbing shoulders always against mm-hmm. people who were at the opposite end of the spectrum. So you just assume, though, that people of all classes, all races, all sexual persuasions, mm-hmm. all religions, I didn't even know white people were the majority. Mm-hmm. I honestly wow. thought, like, I honestly thought that most of America was probably black, Hispanic, Asian. Probably, if you were going to ask me, 50% of the country was Jewish, maybe 30% of the country was gay. You know, like I just assumed yeah. these things that everyone went to the Broadway musical theater. I went to college in the Midwest. 
Oh. So that's when I realized what America looks like. <laughs> Where did you go to school? Lawrence University in mm-hmm. Appleton, Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Uh, wow, that is Joseph far McCarthy, from New York. the very famous anti-communist yep. congressman, is from there. Harry Udini is also though from oh. Appleton. Oh, wow. His father was the first rabbi. <laughs> but it was the first time I ever saw someone in the Aryan Nations. It was the first time I had been someone's first Jew. Oh wow! Yeah. Did so, anyone try to feel your head for horns? I wish they had. <laughs> I know, so, I, I know somebody that happened to them. She, she, this teacher of mine, she was a Hebrew school teacher of mine. Uh, she went down to uh, South Carolina, I think, to teach down there. And the kids wanted to feel her head. For it was more like the polite racism. You know, yeah. like, hey, you know, I, I just got a corned beef sandwich. How do I reheat it? Like, <laughs> stuff like that. You know, like, I remember we, we, had, a, we had a Seder. Mm-hmm. for Passover, and it was just all all the Jewish kids in the school, all six of us. Mm-hmm. And I remember they invited the li- some living religions of the world class, like 40 kids who wanted to see what Jews were like in their natural habitat. Oh, what? like a National Geographic Ooh. thing. Yeah. <laughs> and that was really what just blew my mind. Like, wow. Oh, my God. And then, okay, so... So you had you said you didn't draw very much. This was uh, this, this was is like it. one example of it. This so is then, it. Okay, so then what were you doing for all of the rest of the time while you were suffering? Like, what was your channel for getting that out? Or were you just stewing in your head? Was there something that you liked to read that helped? Or, well, reading is difficult with dyslexia. So, like, what was your coping mechanism? Well, that was a weird thing. So, like, 12, 13, reading, math, everything was really difficult. Yeah. And then like around 14, it just all, the math was always going to be difficult, but the reading really cleared up. Mm-hmm. Like all of a sudden I was reading Stephen King and I remember my 15, when I was 15, I, I tested out of high school on oh, my damn. reading comp. I was reading on a post high school level. Wow. So it just, the brain snapped yeah. probably because I spent all my time reading. Mm-hmm. I'd read the newspaper. I'd read books. I was just reading, reading, reading. I'd mm-hmm. listen to the news. I'd listen to comedy albums. I'd read the National Lampoon. I'd read... Uh, the New Yorker, mm-hmm. I would read Freud for beginners and Marx for beginners. <laughs> course, I was just very course. like eating up everything I could. I would talk to grownups and I wasn't going to do anything creative. This is literally it for me and creativity until maybe I'm 15, 16. And then I've just become like a normal teen. And then I yeah. can go back to, you know, being creative and funny and all that other stuff. But the dark years were definitely 12 to 14. Yeah. Just like consuming as much as you could, so you didn't have to engage with the rest of the world. Yeah, and also yeah. I, I had no skills. Yeah, like I was not a good adolescent. I was fat. I I didn't know how to talk. My voice was really high. I had acne. I just all the awkward things. I was mm-hmm. all I was bad at everything. You know how like someone who's not athletic looks like? I bet they're really smart. Yeah, like I bet they're just a brainiac. No, 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 no. It's just like imagine someone with no academic skills in the body of someone who looks like all they have is academic skills, and that would have been me, like between the ages of twelve and fifteen. Mm-hmm. But you survived it. And then, Did I? I don't know. Are you still fifty? You're still <laughs> no, living but in like, that. Uh... Then I said, I, I'll pursue the arts and be a writer. Like maybe if I had more well-adjusted, you know, ages twelve to fourteen, I'd be an orthodontist right now, living in Largemont. Ah. Uh, but do you really want that? Do you really want to be looking at people's mouths all day long? That's true. No, not really. No, fuck that. <laughs> fuck that. So it was It was at that time when you were like, uh, screw all you people. I'm going to express myself when I get older. Like, was did you cr- make a contract with yourself to go into a creative field? No, no, no. It was weird. So like in high school, I left theater. I got cast in the very first play I ever auditioned. It was The Importance of Being Earnest. And I oh, got to play perfect. the Reverend Canon Chausable. Yes. Because when you're a fat, heavy set, 
You get the Jewish character kid. parts. You get all the characters. Yeah, and I was yeah. like, this is awesome. And then the next play was going to be on Golden Pond, and I was going to be in this play with this girl I had a crush on. Mm-hmm. And then this kid from West Virginia, who looks literally like Henry Fonda, went out for the role. <laughs> no. Oh, no. Oh, it was so, I was like, so I became the stage manager. And oh, God, I, why does that always happen to us? I stage managed every play. Yep. From then on in three years of stage managing in high school. Mm-hmm. And I got to college. I'm like, I am not dealing with theater anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go and be an attorney like my father and my father before him. Be a good, wealthy Jewish fellow with mm-hmm. a good career. And I remember um, my junior year of college, I took German. And I, the German professor was really kind. He said, if you leave right now in the middle of the term, I can say that you withdrew passing. and You don't have an F. So I said, okay, I left. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, what the heck am I going to take? I have literally half a term and I want a credit. And a friend of mine I was having lunch with, who was an English major, said, you know, they're still letting you take playwriting. And I'm like, okay, I'll take playwriting. Amazing. because, And in playwriting, I knew like from writing that if you write what you know, mm-hmm. that's all you need to do. Mm-hmm. And I knew like for this class, you get a B if you wrote a full length play. Right. So, and I had never written before. So I think, well, screw it. This is going to be simple. I'll just make something up about something that happened to me. A friend of mine, he and I had been house sitting the summer before. Um, he was uh, much smarter than me. And he was, you know, we were like Oscar and Felix, you know. Yep. And um, he ended up sleeping with a girl I had a crush on. Oh, fuck mm. that guy. So I got my revenge by beating him at Trivial Pursuit. <laughs> <laughs> and I, was, I wrote a play based on that experience. That was literally the play. Oh, that's incredible. What was it called? Do you remember? Uh, no, thank God I don't. <laughs> but uh, it was really bad. But, but my teacher thought it was great because I was not, I had no influences. Yeah. I had no, like, I did not, was influenced by David Mamet or Neil Simon. I had no voice. It was just you. It was just me writing about two guys in college who were clearly lost and clueless. Yeah. Trying to out whatever each other. And uh, he said, well, you're a playwright. I said, well, that's nice. I'll be a lawyer. And then <laughs> my senior year of college, I took my entrance exam for law school, and I got the lowest possible score. <laughs> oh, no. So then I said, I'm going to get a PhD in political, uh, gov- in political science. Oh, you and then kept at the trying, end of that year, my political science professor said to me, who was my mentor, my advisor, said, do you really want to get a job in this field? Because I'll tell you, it's very hard to get a job. And I thought, nah, I don't really, I don't know what I'm going to do. So my playwriting professor said, hey, I can get you into graduate school if you want. And I didn't want to like have a real job or anything. So I'm like, okay, cool. Get me into graduate school. And that's how I became a writer because I didn't really want to do anything when I got out of college. But you were so naturally good at it. And like how perfect that you were kind of gently steered in the direction of doing doing that. You know, I mean, I, yeah, I thought I was going to be an attorney like my dad as well. Your dad was also an attorney? What kind of an attorney was he? Uh, He's a... He's a corporate lawyer who, uh, he just does contracts and stuff, but he was in a law firm for like 30 years and fucking miserable. And now he's the general counsel of a, a, a big accounting for a national accounting firm. My dad was a tax attorney. Oh, yeah. So they're the, they're the same. Yeah. Um, and uh, I mean, my dad, I mean, as I've said on the show before, like he's like the American dream, like grew up in Jewish tenement housing in Jackson Heights and like worked his way up through to Harvard Law School. And then like, my dad went it. to Harvard Law School. I bet they. What well, class? Not, well, He's class of sixty. No, seventy three. Oh yeah, much yeah. later. My my yeah. My dad went to school with uh, Michael Dukakis. Oh my goodness, fancy. Well, that was just the. the I'm sure your dad went to someone also in the class of seventy three. Yeah. Well, did he, he make review? 
Uh, I don't know. I don't know his story. I just know that like he was a really um, very anal, like very hard worker. He was the valedictorian of his undergrad. He Where'd went he to, to uh, undergrad? Binghamton That's when, a good it, school. when it was still Harper College. Yes. Um, uh, but then when he got to Harvard, he he it was really hard for him. Like it was the first time in his life that he'd ever gotten anything below an A. You if know? it's any con- consolation, my dad graduated Yale cum laude and he had a hard time getting anything besides a B at Harvard Law School. Which, by the way, shows you this conversation, yeah. considering where we are in our own lives, is, <laughs> is, is really soul-crushing. It's, it, it's if, extra- if our dads had simply been miners in log logging cabins, this would have been such a different conversation. I know. Well, I've been thinking about this a lot. This Anyway, so I said to my dad when I was in like fifth grade, I was like, I'm going to be a lawyer like you. And he's like, if you go into law, I'm going to break your arm. Do not do that. Like, because mm-hmm. he, he hated it. Like, he, had, he was having nervous breakdowns when he was 30, you know? Um, and he should have been a writer or a musician. He's got all the skills for that, but instead he sacrificed for his family, and now here I am, uh, 34 and waiting tables and no idea what is to become of my future and feeling like I'm squandering the gifts that my father gave me. Well, that just shows you that finally after, what, how many generations the Jews have really become Americans? Oh, that's so sad. We've given up our striver... (laughs) Gonna make it kind of entire. I hope all the other, you know, this is for all the other new people who are coming from different lands to America, just so they know that their children's children's children will be more than happy to do just exactly what we're doing in the far future. No, all I can say is your best way to be successful is no, because like I feel like the new, I feel like Asians are the new Jews in terms of like who is cornering the market in all of the best, like most lucrative white collar jobs. Right. So you realize that their children or their grandchildren will be like, I'm going to start an improv troupe. Right. And then all of their ancestors will be rolling over in their graves. There you go. Well, then it's too late already. (laughs) It's already happening. It's already happening. Mm -hmm. Wow. Oh my God. Well, yes. Uh, So uh, I, I don't want to end it on this note because it's too dark. So, um, (laughs) When was it that you decided to come to Los Angeles to continue to pursue this um, non-lawyerly dream? And is has it been worth it, Chris? Ooh, it's a loaded are, question. Those are, those are two different <laughs> questions. Uh, so, yeah, anyway, I was at uh, – I ended up actually getting kicked out of uh, my playwriting school. I got Why? that degree, I, but I didn't get the MFA. I got the master's because my playwriting graduate advisor is an alcoholic who never saw any of my works performed. But it was cool because at this period of my life, I had had so many problems with different teachers that having a teacher like that was 100% okay. Oh, yeah. You were used to like, like, I "I got this. I got this. (laughs) You think that's going to stop me? No. Mm. So I ended up in the Samuel French Festival of One Act Plays. And then from there, I'm like, yeah. So I'm like, I think I'm just going to go to film school. So I go to NYU film school. Oh, you're just like, I'm going to be a perpetual student forever. Well, I'm going to get the degree because everyone wants to go to NYU film school. Yeah. I'm like, and I could get in now because I have this big, you know, I'm a better writer with all this big credit. And I know NYU will get you somewhere. Yeah. And then I realized NYU is really expensive. Yeah. And I do not want to like squander whatever money or financial reserves I have. I'll just move to Los Angeles. And I'm just going to make sure that in the next year or two, I'm going to write on a sitcom and then I'll sell a script. And by the time I'm 30, I'll be an executive producer uh, of my own show. Best and, laid plan. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> when you're 27, you know exactly how it's going to go. Yep. There's, yep. You, you, it's yep. like you have a grand vision yep. and you know it's 100% correct. Yep. You can put all of your, you can bet the house. Mm-hmm. You can bet the house on whatever it is, especially if you've had no actual proof 
of success. If you <laughs> if, if you truly believe that you can make it, you should absolutely just believe in yourself. And then, uh, is it worth it? Has it been worth it? Oh my god, that's a. I ask myself that question all the time. Okay, yeah, yeah. But you know, as you just said, do I want to be an orthodontist? You know, or a podiatrist in Great Lake Long Island. Oh, a podiatrist. That's Look, the fucking worst. <laughs> well, th- those would have been the other fates, right? I mean, it basically, either that or I'd been a therapist living on the Upper West Side. Right. Actually, that wouldn't be too bad. Then I could go to Zabar's. Then- yeah, but then you just, you'd spend all day, like, like absorbing all of these neuroses and then have nowhere to shake it off. I mean, I guess you could be a story. No, you know, that's, I think, I think that's exactly my fate. This is what would have happened. So I would have moved back. I would have gotten like a degree in psychotherapy from, you know, one of the CUNY schools. Mm-hmm. Hunter. Hunter. Hunter yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Hunter. I would have gone into practice. I would live maybe one block from where I grew up. Mm-hmm. I'd have probably an actual, my a home office. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd, I'd maybe work four days a week. Mm-hmm. I'd read The New Yorker. And then every so often I'd go to storytelling shows and yeah. like, tell really horrible stories uh, because I have just a wealthy, successful, happy person. Yeah. You cannot make good art as a wealthy, successful, happy person. Correct. So I would be, I'd be <laughs> I like, oh, that, is that rich, middle-aged psychotherapist going to come and tell another darn story? That would be me. Well, I love that you are not on that path because it makes me feel less insane because I also, like, I laid it all out. Although for me, it was at 13 that I could see the entire future. Nice. And then it has not turned out like that remotely. Um, Rod, has it turned out that way for you? No, I mean, I completely changed my life before I moved to L.A., so I had no idea what I was doing. I was like, we'll see. (laughs) I thought I wanted to work in music business, and then I was like, this is soul-crushing. Can't do it. thought, hey, I'll try improv. Now I'm like, what am I going to do? Improv doesn't pay money, so... But, like, one of the reasons why I love hanging out with Veronica is because she's, like... kind of she had the opposite experience of an upbringing from me and uh coming from the pacific northwest that's like another planet oh like, yeah i don't know what yeah. happens there how was the thai food out there oh, so good yeah See, that's, <laughs> so that's the difference right there that's the difference <laughs> very good yeah every town did you feel like uh veronica like um because i I feel like the Northeast of this country is very rigid and very kind of narrow, like focused on like achievements, like a very, very much achievers. Like I went to college in the Midwest as well. Where'd you go? To Northwestern. Oh, the good school. I've been to Evanston. Yeah, it's fine. I was not happy there, but um, it's fine. And uh, lots of Jews there, though. Lots of Jews. And but my best friends that I met made there were not from the New York area. They mm-hmm. were from other they were from San Francisco or they were from the Midwest. Um, much more grounded people who weren't as obsessed with academic achievement. And so I feel like you didn't have that kind of pressure. Like for me, I came, I came from a town where everybody was comparing SAT scores, you know? Oh, yeah. And no. uh, In the Midwest, they're really obsessed, I think, with hardwood floors. <laughs> <laughs> they really are. They talk about that and a cheese. lot. And cheese. Yeah. And how, how much time it took to get the car started. Yeah. Yeah, And exactly. having children and getting married and owning homes. All those things. And what church do you go to? Of course. Of yeah. course. So, so I, I envy people like you from the Pacific Northwest and elsewhere in the country who kind of like didn't have have this like rigid idea of what life is supposed to, what successful life is supposed to be. I think it was, it varied very much family to family though mm-hmm. too. Although it wasn't the culture necessarily at our school. We didn't, I think we, I mean, we had a valedictorian in high school, but it wasn't like 
crazy. I mean, we didn't, it wasn't competitive. I mean, it was among the top five performers in our school, but everyone mm-hmm. else was like, we're not going to get it. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> um, SAT, I mean, we had standardized testing. So that was something that more seemed to cause rebellion because it didn't matter if you didn't want to go to college. It, it did it, not matter if you didn't want to go to college. Isn't that crazy? That's the craziest thing I've heard all day. <laughs> I know. Yeah, it was. And I've heard some crazy stuff from a bum on the way here. <laughs> okay. So yeah. you just topped him. Um, my grade was the last grade that it wasn't required. So as an I'm incentive, sorry, I didn't even, that did not even, I must have had a stroke. Yeah, Wait, it was, that, what was that it standardized testing was required. What? So our school offered uh, credits if you took it and you passed. So for each, there's four sections. If you passed each section, you got one credit. So it was a quarter credit for each thing towards your, your high school. But it was after that, the grade underneath me was required to take it. And so most people took it because it was like good for college to have it. And most of us were just like, sure, why not? It's not going to hurt us. But like, wow, that's so laid back. It was, it was an interesting time because I think it also had to do with the district I was in. It didn't quite matter for funding maybe I don't know how many people in your graduating class I think like 250 okay so maybe 300 so substantial not like yeah tiny. pretty yeah I don't it was called the wassel <laughs> I don't know it wasn't was called the wassel our test Washington oh. assessment of state that's also oh, like right? a medieval Wassail. drink that you drink yeah. over Christmas time exactly yeah, here, that's yeah. yeah. Oh, awesome <laughs> I just remember uh they I think because our grade was the last year that it wasn't required, but they were starting to offer credits for it. They started pushing it in our classes. So we were, they were teaching for standardized testing, which was stupid. Well, if it, if it helps you, this circle has come full circle. Because when I started, I went to a very progressive private school, which mm-hmm. had no homework. Like a Montessori wow. school? No, it was called, uh, it's still around. It's the Calhoun School. Mm-hmm. And they probably have homework now. But when I went back in the really early 70s, late 60s, mm-hmm. they had no homework. Wow. I don't even know if they had grades. Huh. I mean, it was really just a very, it was very much... The beginning of schools without walls and this idea of like a progressive Brown. education. Yeah. Yes, very much like Brown or St. John's. I have friends who've, who've gone to those schools. Mm-hmm. I mean, it totally freaks out some people. But, yeah, I, to- I get that on the other end. Mm-hmm. You know. Well, now I think it sounds really valuable. If I ever have children, I want them to go to a school like that so they don't have, like, walls in their brain. You know yeah. what I mean? We. I, that said, now it's very pushed for funding to have to have good standardized testing. So yeah. everyone has to do it. But I just remember this. I have one distinct memory of being in biology class. And they, because it wasn't that important, we would start preparing for the test like two weeks at a time. We'd have lessons like directly for the test for science because mm-hmm. the science portion is the hardest. And uh, it was boring. No one wanted to do it. We were all just sitting there like, are you kidding me? You're just teaching us how to like fill out circles and like the the just like different processes. It was so dumb. And uh, so everyone was like half asleep. We're sitting at these tables and she's, our teacher even is just like, I don't fucking teach this. And all of a sudden in the back of the room, I just hear like a slam on the table and then another slam on the floor and a kid had fainted and he hit his head so hard on the table and then on the floor. And then we had to call the 911 and like an ambulance came and we had paramedics in our classroom. And that was like all I thought of. I was like taking the science portion of the test and all I could think about was this kid that fainted because he was severely dehydrated. And you could have theoretically gotten out of that test because you could have claimed some psychological trauma and you, oh, you totally should have rocked it. And some free therapy. That's like, isn't that like, I think when I was in college, there was this thing that if um, your roommate killed themselves, you would automatically get A's. What? 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 Just not 
please do not kill your roommate if you're struggling. <laughs> I didn't. I, 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 I do not want to be sued. No, your hands are clean. Your hands okay, are clean. I'm just saying. So in, in a much more milder, less. Yeah, I, I could have uh, really you, cranked that up. You should have at least gotten, yeah. you know, some pizza <laughs> off of that or something. should have gotten something. Yeah. Instead, we just were like, Jeremiah. <laughs> and then you had to go back to your test. Yeah, which I don't even think I passed. I was so bad at science. I don't even think I passed it. But whatever, it didn't matter. I that got three quarters math. of a credit. Really? Mm-hmm. I don't know how credits work. I don't think my high In school In high school, had them. it was one credit a class. In oh. college, it's like five credits a class, you know, oh. or whatever. Okay. Depending on how, how many hours it is. I don't know, but I still have nightmares about classes that I... Oh, always. ...forgot that I was supposed to be taking and that I haven't been going for the past several weeks. Oh, that dream where you yeah. wake up and you think, oh, yeah, I, I have a test. And for some reason, yeah, the teacher didn't that drop you. That will haunt you for the rest of your life. <laughs> I know. My dad still has those yeah, dreams a, because of fucking Harvard Law School. Yeah, I even like Uncle Joe's House of Waffles Law School. People probably say that. <laughs> it's like a really, it's like a, just a regular-ass nightmare that we yep. all will have until we're dead. Is this, did I write my paper? Am I, do I own a homework assignment? Yeah. I, I know. How come I'm not wearing a shirt and I'm yeah. in this giant assembly hall? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah those. Um, man, Chris, this has been great. Yeah. I'm no, so glad that you have come to visit us. And, um, I have a gift for you. As you know, I always have a gift for my guests. Like his, his eyebrows just kind of like nice. flared for a second out of fear. <laughs> I, I, uh, you know, um, still, uh, have, my parents are still in the house where they have been for my whole life. So I have all this stuff and rather than throw it away, I just gift items of completely no value except for sentimental to people That's who great. come on the show. So for you, I have super random. This is, uh, it's a frog holding a picnic basket. Um, and there's a little like metal loop on the top of his head because I'm pretty sure it was a Christmas ornament because a uh, good Jew that I was, uh, I collected all kinds of tchotchkes, including Christmas ornaments, even though we never had a Christmas tree. You never had a Christmas tree? No, my, both my parents are Jewish. Well, if my parents were Jewish, we had Christmas trees. No, but my dad grew up like conservative and like, no. We, my dad grew up chased by Nazis. Shit. And communists. Yeah, Nazis and commies. Yeah. So, no, I My I mom asked, was just chased out of the Bronx. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Because it's the Bronx. You go live in Queens. It's so much nicer. Yeah, and I did. Yeah, there you go. Um... So I don't know what the deal is with this thing. You can throw it away if you want. He doesn't stand upright, unfortunately. That's from a book. It is, is it Frog and Toad thing? It's from, it's, uh, or Beatrix Potter? It's Beatrix from Beatrix Potter. Potter. Yeah. It's, uh, I forgot now. It's been a couple of years since I remember reading this book. And I even saw the movie. Well, I, I just name, I like his little slippers. It's definitely that illustration. It is yeah. Beatrix Potter. Potter, yeah. It's it's adorable. It's really cute. Maybe. If I really did a lot of drugs right now and I just stared at it, it would be a wonderful like companion on yeah. a, like an acid trip exactly you know like this would be the that's your little frog that would guide me through <laughs> my multi-level journeys what's the word for that for that like a totem that 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 snaps you back into reality yeah. if you're i know what i'm you're gonna, I'm gonna go out now and score some peyote <laughs> and you know <laughs> maybe go to culver you. city on the bus and just stare at it until perfect. i reach nirvana perfect <laughs> that's exactly that's exactly what he's for yeah or like hang a little thread on him and Dangle them from your, I don't know. You don't have a car, so a window? I guess so. Wear it like a necklace. Wear it like a necklace. Wear it like a necklace. These are awesome. Awesome. (laughs) Or throw it in the garbage, but just don't leave it here. You got it. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, Chris, is there anything you'd like to plug right now? Uh, No, just 
I storyteller. I produce storytelling shows. If you see my name, you should go catch me because I'm awesome. He is awesome. And honestly, I feel like you're one of the busiest storytellers in this city. I th- you're always at shit and doing shit. Oh, yeah. I'm doing a show on Sunday called Brainstorm at the Acme in North Hollywood. But first of all, I don't know where that is. Oh, the Acme Theater in North Hollywood? Yeah. It's in the uh, Arts District. Oh, and cool. it's a really cool show. It's produced by uh, Seth Gilbert and Rich Trackenberg and Julieta Gilbert. Mm-hmm. And what you do is you get a bunch of storytellers. And the audience makes a suggestion. And then one storyteller goes up and improvises a story based on that suggestion. And they sit down and the storytellers will talk for about a minute about that story. And that will inspire another storyteller to randomly get up. Oh, my God. I and love tell this. a story. I am so on board. And so on and so on until everyone's done. Brainstorm? Oh. Brainstorm. That's awesome. I think this, this episode is, is going to come out next Sunday. So it'll be too late for well, that one. Then I will say... Paddle Tales, yes. July 11th. Mm-hmm. You're going to be on that show, right? Yeah. The theme is July because <laughs> it's July. <laughs> July is the theme. That's all yes. I can say. Yes. Good. I'm excited about it. I'm real excited about it. Um, yeah. Um, Chris Corbell, thank you so much for being on the Bitch Thank sheet. you. It's a pleasure. Have a great day, ladies. Yeah, you too. And for all of you uh, campers out there, um, Oh, Veronica's got to go and do the music. Thanks for 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 uh, double teaming this. Uh, that's not the word that I meant. No, but it was really cool. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> Thanks for being two 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 people at once. You're welcome. Uh, yeah. So guys, um, the bitch seat. It's on Twitter. It's on Instagram. It's on Facebook. It's on iTunes. It's on Google Play. It's on Stitcher. It's on uh, thebitchseatpodcast.com. And uh, treasure what got you here. Attention Springwood, my name is Josh Krebs. And I'm Liz Richards. And we're the hosts of Bloody Date Night. So Josh and I have been dating for four years, and Josh loves horror movies, and I hate them. Yeah, so each episode we go through the horror movie franchise canon to watch an episode and then meet up and we discuss it together. And so far it's been going pretty well, right Liz? I think it's gone pretty well so far. Yeah, each episode I try to see how far I can push Liz to watch a really good horror movie until she basically leaves me and it hasn't worked yet. Not yet. And it's awesome because you're the Tatum to my Sydney. You're sweet. And here's a clip from one of our recent episodes. Hello, I'm Exposition. Hey, let me t- let me tell you what just happened. There's a break-in at this costume store. Somebody stole some ropes, some knives. Somebody stole a mask. They stole $250. They scared a cat. They took two boas. They took two boas. Two feather boas, one I, set of angel wings. It's one of those goddamn... They're probably having a burlesque. <laughs> probably doing a burlesque show later. I don't know. Oh, Haddonfield. What isn't happening? Haddonfield's first burlesque <laughs> club. That'd be amazing. I would love that. Um, the Lacey Pumpkin. The la- Ooh. This has been an Atlantic Transmission production. Hey!